Good morning and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. Today we're going to be talking again with Ben Weber, who is the CEO and founder or co-founder of Humanize, a Boston company. Ben, how are you? Did I get the title right? Doing well, John. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's perfect. All right. So would you just take a moment and introduce yourself? You were, you were on about a year or so ago. But I bet there are a couple of people who still haven't heard of you. That's right. Well, yeah. So happy to go into details on that. So again, I uh, um, I'm one of the co-founders of Humanize, which uh, spun off the research that uh, my co-founders Tammy Kim and Daniel Olgan were doing uh, back at the MIT Media Lab with uh, Sandy Penland. Right. So really, what we're doing at the lab during our PhDs was trying to use data about how people work email, chat, meeting data, um, but importantly also sensor data about how people interact in the real world to really understand how work was getting done within companies and then using that to create performance, retention, and what have you, and wrote a number of papers on that. Um, you know, as we were spinning the, that research out into a company, it was a senior researcher over at HBS, wrote a book called People Analytics, and we could talk more about that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, again, I've been really researching this this whole area for um, over 12 years at this point, you know, really trying to use data about how people actually um, interact and collaborate to, uh, you know, to understand at a really deep level um, what's going on within companies. It must be an interesting time for you. You've been at this for a dozen years, and all of a sudden, the kinds of things that you've been thinking about are very mainstream. So you, the company must be growing, and you must be having a kind of a surreal experience. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think so. It, as we were talking about before we went live, it's the sort of thing where, you, you know, uh, we've been working on this for, for over 12 years, and it's, you know, the 12-year overnight success. <laughs> but we've, uh, no, I mean, been growing really rapidly. It, it, I mean, in the last couple of years, but especially, I mean, even since the summer, we've, you know, more than tripled the business. We've more than doubled the number of people. Um, and, and I remember even when we started the company, which is, you know, six and a half years ago at this point, uh, you know, people looked at us like we were crazy. And, you know, people still think we're a little weird. But to your point, the really people's understanding of, um, you know, collaboration behaviors at work, it's important. Um, and finally, also, what's really exciting is the, the ecosystem of sensors in the workplace, um, really being able to understand face-to-face -face interaction at literally a millisecond level within organizations. Um, that infrastructure just wasn't there in the past. And now you see... Um, a whole bunch of manufacturers like HIDUs, partners, um, who has millions of people wearing location-aware sensor badges that can also have additional sensors in them. You know, that really goes back to, I mean, back at MIT, we had these, uh, you know, gigantic sensor badges that were like the size of a pie that could measure, again, millisecond level, how you're talking to people, who's talking to who, where people spend time. Again, not what people say, but in real time, being able to dig very deeply um, into the way people are communicating. And, and while the ecosystem can't do that sort of stuff yet, we're, frankly, only, we're less than a year away from that sort of stuff being um, completely installed. A number of our partners are literally building uh, those next generation IDs now. And, and so, you know, we've been building up to this moment, and it's, uh, it's really exciting um, that, you know, it's you know, we've been growing nicely um, before this, but it's um, it's just very validating, um, and it's uh, it's a nice place to be. Well, congratulations! It, it must be great. So, why did you why don't you take a couple of minutes and and tell us about what Humanize does precisely? Yeah, well, well, to take a step back, um, 
I think the reason we started the company is that, um, and the reason we started doing this research is that we realized there were a number of really basic questions that I could ask any company in the world that nobody can answer. Like how much does management uh, talk to the engineering team? Nobody knows. Even how many hours do people work? Right? You think about how simple those questions are, how critical they are. And the reason people can't answer them is they, they just don't have data. Right? You might use surveys, you might use consultants, and there are good reasons to use those data sources. We also, of course, we know the problems with them, right? If it's sunny like it is uh, here today in Boston, you'll answer differently uh, than it was cloudy and rainy. Even if I ask you, you know, who do you talk to yesterday, you're only about 30% accurate, right? Humans are just not recording devices. And really the key insight was that we already have a lot of data about what people do at work. We've got email, chat, meeting data, um, but now sensor data. And what we do is analyze that data um, essentially in real time on a day-by-day -day basis um, in a privacy-preserving way, so we're not capturing content. We're not, um, we don't look at names or email addresses, anything like that, right? It's really in aggregate, how are people interacting and collaborating in work? And what we do is we use that to um, push uh, collaboration intelligence dashboards to our customers, which are um, typically large um, four to 500 companies um, that, again, it, where we built these dashboards around specific business problems like uh, diversity inclusion, um, collaboration or uh, collaboration delivery risk, so, you know, process optimization stuff, uh, workspace planning, um, and really we, we keep expanding those things. Um, but we've gotten to the point today where we have by far the largest data set on workplace interaction in the world. Um, I mean, I even just checked this morning, we have well over 14 billion face-to-face um, -face interaction data points. Um, we have hundreds of millions of digital communications uh, from millions and millions of people. Um, and it's the sort of thing where, you know, we don't even know the full value of that data, right? There's so many more things that we can do um, technologically. And we, we know even back from our research at MIT, there's, there's mm -hmm. other things we can influence in companies. But, you know, I think the challenge has been, um, you know, sort of the researcher in me wants to keep pushing uh, those boundaries, but also from a practical business perspective. Um, I mean, the stuff that our customers are using today, these are things that we were, um, I mean, we were doing, you know, nine, ten years ago, but it's really, now it's become more mainstream. And so we need to keep making products that people can, can use today, and, but maybe push them a little outside of their comfort zone so we can do more and more powerful things and, and really start to get to a point where we can really quantitatively test and really in a hypothesis-driven way validate um, how we manage uh, people. What, a, what, a, what an exciting place to be exploring. Are you, are you, by any chance, do you look closely enough at individual behavior so that you can, right, I, I guess I should back up a second, the out, one of the outputs of your process is a pure measurement. I, I'd be tempted to say non-judgmental, but it's but it's 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 a an engineer's measurement of interaction inside of an organization. And um, and what 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 I've seen in the work is that is that there are places where the organization is tightly clustered, and there are places where there are people who float out like satellites on the organization. And, and I've wondered since the last time we spoke whether or not you see some sort of correlation between people and the types of roles that they take um, inside of an organization. So are there people who are more likely to do well at the cluster um, and people who are more likely to do well at the fringes? And, and, and have you been able to uh, kind of 
categorize people in that way? Maybe not exactly what you're saying, but we've seen, I'll say at a high level, we've, since even we last spoke, we've seen some things that are really similar. So, for example, at a um, very large uh, multinational software company, um, we saw that you get certain people where on certain, on certain stretches of time, when they have networks that are more cohesive, um, they tend to perform better. Whereas other people, actually, when they have just lower overall levels of interaction, tend to perform better in terms of milestone achievement, uh, number of bugs filed. Again, admittedly imperfect metrics of performance, um, but you see certain things like that. Um, again, I'm always hesitant to ascribe that to in intrinsic characteristics of the person, but that's certainly something that you could hypothesize. Um, and actually what our customers started to do with that was they started to test, well, if they rotated people into different teams, different managers, different networks, what sort of impact would that have? Um, now, where we are getting, which which has also, I think, evolved since the last time we spoke, is now that we have, um, you know, such a, you know, exponentially growing mass of not just data from companies we're already working with, but from more and more companies, um, there are things that we can start to predict and prescribe um, for our customers, right? But the thing is, is that the reason it's taken us this long to get to that point is that we, we, we really only put... Uh, those predictions and uh, prescriptions in if we can do that in a scientifically valid way. So I need to see a company roll out, say, a training program or a reorg dozens of times before I can say quantitatively, here's the kind of impact it has. Now, I could hypothesize it after you know, seeing it once or twice, but you really don't know what, if that is just, you know, there's some foibles of that particular organization that cause certain types of behaviors. Right, really what we're able to do now, and we're going to be releasing this soon over the coming months, is for some of our dashboards, we're going to be able to say, here's where you are today, here's what's going to happen in the next couple months. If you want to move these metrics in these ways, here's three things you could do. Right? And that's, we're, going to, we're not going to be there with all the things we have, um, but with some of them we will. Um, and that's, again, it's not really at the individual level. That's something that, um, as you know, because from a privacy perspective, we're just very um, we're very cautious about doing anything with that kind of data. Um, but certainly there will be, um, you know, at some point in the near future, the ability for individuals to, I mean, we have individual dashboards where you're the only one who gets to see what you do and you compare yourself to people in your team or top performers in the role. But having those same sort of prediction and prescription tools for individuals is something that it, it's certainly on our roadmap and something that we're going to come out with. Well, well, so so what interests me about that is that you know the the failure rate of recruiting processes is pretty well documented to be fifty percent. You know, the 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 effectiveness of the way that companies bring new people into their ecosystem is flip of a coin levels of quality. Right? There's there's no other place in the organization where this this um, inconsistency in quality is is tolerated. And it seems to me that what we don't know is how people are effective in certain kinds of network roles. Um, yeah. And and what you'd like, what what I think you'd like to be able to do is sort of predict the likelihood that if you bring a new player in from a different ecosystem and you know about yeah. how they operate inside of that ecosystem, you don't yeah. you don't put them in the wrong place in yours. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think there is 
obviously a lot of value in that. There, there are challenges. So we've thought about these things, right? And I think there's, I there's, you have. there's, right, there's, there's some point where we'll be able to directly address them. There, there of course, is, you know, challenges with that. Um, so one is that, <laughs> yeah. um, and, 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 you know, we can get into them in, in more or less detail, but, you know, at a, at a basic level, um, so in our model, individuals own their own data, um, which is important for a whole variety of reasons. We're part of the EU privacy shield. We can talk about that. But to do, if I'm hiring a person and I really want to figure out, well, where where would they really be a great fit? Not just from a skill perspective, but um, in a hard skill perspective, but really in terms of the types of uh, collaboration patterns, networks, interaction styles that they thrive in. Um, to do that, um, really accurately, I would want to have their data from where they previously worked. That's an issue, right? Because that's something where right. if, right. It, again, and, you know, we've had a bunch of our users, like, print out their dashboards and show it to their mentors, and that's, that's great, right? But one of the challenges is if you, if companies start requesting that kind of data from applicants, it, it essentially could become compulsory, right, which is a big issue. You know, we've We've been thinking about things more maybe on the flip side, where could you use your own data to search for opportunities that would um, that would be more where you'd be more effective, right? So rather than having the company use you know a hiring company use your data to to fit you into a certain situation, instead having the individual when they are looking for positions figure out where they'd be a good fit because the company provides some metrics about what's going to what's going to be effective. Something like that could work. Again, it's a different business model than we have today, but you know, if you think about it, they accomplish the same goal, but the advantage of doing it from the individual perspective is that um cuz again, an individual you want to be a good fit, you want to uh you know, uh perform well and help um help the group in your in your new company. Um using that as a search function rather than the other way around. Um could be more effective, or having some third party that validates this as a match or not, but not exposing data. There's different ways you could think about doing it, but I think, uh, as you know, the privacy implications of this are, are quite profound. And it, I, I think, um, especially because in the U.S. we just we don't have regulation around this, and we really need regulation around this. Um, I think it's something that that I can at least speak for for us at Humanize. We are going to approach extremely cautiously and frankly won't enter it if we feel like there is any sort of a gray area in um, in exposing individual data. Okay, uh, so as, as Humanize, what you do is collect and analyze data looking for patterns that, that I would say, at least in the beginning, they're patterns that nobody's ever seen before. And and so 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 I liken it to um, exploring the universe with a telescope, sort of. You, you, you discover, you start to be able to name things, but, but it's always um, at the heart of the endeavor is this curiosity um, that's applied to a great big pile of data. And so you use the stuff that people are calling artificial intelligence around the world to make sense out of this huge pile of data. How does that work? You know, most of the projects that I see, there's a fixed thing that they're trying to get at. Um, and it seems to me that, that your work is more about discovery than that. So, so is that enough for you to run with? 
Yeah, I know it is. And, and, and John, as, as you know, and as people who've heard me talk about this before, um, I certainly take issue with the amount of hype that's been heaped on uh, the capabilities <laughs> of AI in general. Um, but listen, again, I, <laughs> I got my B and my MA in computer science. We, we certainly use AI and machine learning algorithms um, for many parts of our, of our technology, right? Both um, in terms of how we process um, and in real time change our um, uh, calculations of uh, the sensor data to how we um, recognize patterns at scale in the digital data that comes in. There's, there's many different parts where we're, uh, of our platform where we're, again, using, um, you know, what I would call, again, which, which people would, would call AI and, and machine learning algorithms. I, I prefer, I, and you might want to use this, uh, so that the head of uh, um, uh, actually AI at Facebook, a guy named uh, Jan LeCun, um, suggested that rather than um, calling this technology um, AI, we call it differential programming. Very interesting. I like it because it, anyway, we could talk oh, about that. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. That's, yeah. that's nice. But, but I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, again, if, in, with whatever industry you're in, right? So, so, so in our sense, what we're trying to do is first understand, we need to understand things about um, the real world and that you need algorithms that can adapt to changes both in a physical environment as well as uh, changes in digital communication tools so that you can um, extract um, equivalent features from very different situations, right? And so that's really critical and we really need to do that. Now, what I referenced earlier around us, for example, being able to predict what's going to happen in the next week, month, year, um, being able to prescribe certain things. Now, those are things, right, where we are using machine learning tools to do those things. But we're not, what's critical is we're not just doing that in an unsupervised way. Right now, for those who aren't familiar, again, an unsupervised um, machine learning algorithm is an example. Um, essentially, you just you set up um, a, a certain model, you feed a ton of data into it, and you tell it to predict some outcome, and then it spits out some, you get a final trained algorithm at the end, and then that's what you've got. Right Now, we don't do that. Um, and a big reason that we don't do that is that we have so much data and so many metrics about so few outcomes, right, that we would just overfit the whole model if we did it that way. Right? So we still do it in a hypothesis-driven way. That's why, you know, when I said that we're not going to be releasing prescriptions for another um, couple months, it's that it's because I need enough of those outcome measures to be able to say with statistical confidence that we are predicting that in a real way and it's not just because I can overfit it with some of these algorithms, right? Beyond that, I would just say that no matter what industry you're in, no matter what, uh, frankly, you know, role you get, if you have some role in management or some role where you're dealing with data, if you're not using statistical methods, if you're not using machine learning or let's say differential programming um, to try to understand the data that's coming in, you're probably, um, again, it's all a question of is it applicable to the problem itself. But I would argue that for a lot of problems, it is applicable, right? But that what you need to do is understand which, um, which model should you use, um, how should you design it, how should you train it, how can you do that in a, in a valid way, um, but also realizing these are not uh, magic boxes, right? These are, frankly, very straightforward statistical tools um, that uh, most of them, most of the, uh, let's say, state-of-the-art in AI or machine learning, these are algorithms developed in the 80s, 
Um, the only thing that's changed is the volumes of data we have about stuff, which improves their predictive power. But as soon as you go outside the bounds of the the very precise uh, you know inputs and outputs you're trying to predict, these algorithms break about very easily. And so that's why, especially in our case, because cu our customers are literally making multi-billion dollar bets um, using our technology, and they've been very successful. Um, but that's another reason why we we just want to be um, make sure that we're being very rigorous um, about the predictions that we're uh, we're going to be putting out. That's great. So I'm going I'm to skip ahead a little bit. What are, what are the big ethical issues in your work? I mean, there are obviously a number of ethical issues in what we do. Um, we are collecting for at this point millions of people. Um, I mean, millisecond level data on location, how people talk who they communicate with, who they meet with. Um, very sensitive information um, for the company, but of course for the individuals as well, right? And so we just take a very strong stance on this. Um, we go above and beyond, first of all, EU privacy standards um, and how we deal with data, um, which we think is important. But, you know, very concretely, we don't look at content of communication, right, whether it's face-to-face -face or, you know, digitally. Uh, we don't look at personally identifiable information or, um, or personally uh, or confidential information, right? So no email addresses, no names. All those things are um, essentially anonymized or uh, technically it's called hashing. They're hash insulted on, on our customer's end. So by the time the data gets uh, onto our servers, uh, we don't – mathematically, it's nearly impossible to back out who that person is. And then by the time – when we actually provide metrics back to our customers and dashboards, it is mathematically impossible for them to back out what a single individual is doing, right? And we do this for a number of reasons. We think, first of all, it's the right thing to do. Um, but second of all, it means that, um, again, we can operate pretty much anywhere in the world without changing how we deal with data, right? The, the things that companies actually care about are these big aggregate things. It's not to say, and you've brought up some of them, that there aren't applications at the individual level. Um, it's just that, um, really some of the, um, the the creepy factor, right? The fact that, you know, what if a potential employer, your employer, would know where you are every second of every day, could see who you talk to, um, or could maybe even request that you give them data from your previous company, right? That that doesn't seem right to us. We're just not going to do that. Now, again, there are some, some regulations in the EU around this, and frankly, not enough. Um, and there need to be a lot more in the U.S. because, I mean, as you know, right now there is zero regulation around this kind of stuff in the U.S. I mean, the, the court precedents go back to the 80s around closed-circuit television, so woefully out of date. Um, and we right. absolutely right. need these sort of things to be enshrined in law, um, because if they're not, it, it, the point is, collecting the kind of data that we collect, just the raw data, is easy. It's easy to do that. It's easy for me to, to pull that data and, you know, maybe in a slow way even get some sort of feedback on it. It would be inaccurate, but you can do it. Right. Now, you know, the challenge, of course, what we, you know, and what we spent, you know, well over a decade doing is deriving, you know, real-time insight at a scalable level and being able to uh, then get to the point where you can, uh, sure, you can prescribe things um, in a really robust way. Uh, that's hard. But, but again, just because collection of the data is easy, it means that it is very likely that at some point in the next five, ten years, someone is going to collect this kind of data and do something very wrong with it, right? And if there are no laws in place to prevent that, not only will that happen and harm those individuals, but then there will be reactive legislation, which will harm this entire field. Right? And I mean, today, I can literally point to hundreds of thousands of people who measurably like their jobs better, who make more money, um, and their companies make more money. 
because of what we do. Right? And people spend the majority of their waking hours at work. Right? And we are fundamentally using data to, to make that better right? because millions of people hate their jobs, and they don't hate it because of complex reasons. They hate it. The work environment sucks. They don't like the way the company's being managed. We can quantify that. We can measure that. It's no longer soft. Right? But again, if people abuse this kind of technology, even just the basic data collection aspect of it, right, that all the good that I, that I fundamentally believe we can do is going to go away. Right? And so I think we need, as an industry, especially as the industry grows, we need to be um, uh, very, first of all, transparent about what those risks are, because there are risks. And need, anyone who says they're not is just lying or fooling themselves. And we also need, um, we really need to demand regulation around this, right? Because that is, frankly, uh, first of all, it's the right thing to do. And frankly, it's the only way the industry is going to survive long term. That's that's really interesting. You know, you know, I teach um, with my wife a social media and internet law class at the local law school, and 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 what we're seeing is that the law has no chance of keeping up with technology, um, and so so we're seeing uh, appellate level decisions for cases that mattered ten years ago finally hit the streets with conclusions that are wrong because the technology's changed and. Um, it's it's a very interesting puzzle to figure out how you get regulation into this environment, given the accelerating rate at which things are happening. That's, that's, yeah. We should have a long conversation about that. It's a very important conversation. Um, so so to wrap this up, just 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 a little bit. You have to compete for development talent in a world where um, the kinds of people that you need to hire to make this work are in very, very short supply. How do you do that? What makes you different in that way? Well, there's a few things. Um, so uh, l let me give you some statistics at a high level. Um, okay. For scientist openings or researchers, we get well over 150 applications for every opening. Right now, I mean, as you know, 80% of those probably aren't qualified, all those things. We still get a significant number of very qualified applicants um, who are coming to us, right? And we're paying market rate, right? I mean, we, we could pay more. Uh, well, we can't really pay more. You know, we're, you know, but, you know, importantly, we're, we're not paying people insane amounts of money more than they make in other places, right? So you could right. go work for Google or Facebook and you make more money. But I think the reason that we have so many people coming to us is, is first, you know, because what we do is different and is compelling. Um, but also because, again, there's nothing wrong with ads, but fundamentally, if you're going to a Facebook or a Google or something like that, you're going to sell ads. Like, that's what you're doing, right? Um, and what we're doing is, as I mentioned before, we're, we're making where people spend the majority of the waking hours of their lives better, right? That's worth my time. And it seems like that's worth a lot of other people's time, too. Um, I mean, beyond that, I don't know, actually, John, have you read The Alliance by Reid Hoffman? I haven't. Okay, that is, for everybody who's on this, this is a two-hour read. It is a fantastic book and encapsulates uh, in a lot of detail how at least I think about employment. Um, uh, Reid Hoffman, again, was the, uh, the founder of LinkedIn. Um, he was CEO for a while, partner at Greylock. He was also pay, one of the founders of PayPal. Um, the key there, and this is just, again, illustrates how we approach employment to humanize, is we just, when we hire people, we're interviewing them. We admit that um, they're probably not going to be at the company for their whole careers, right? That just doesn't happen anymore. 
right? right? Um, the, the old model of employment was you go to work for a company for your whole life. Um, the new model of employment is, hey, it's great to have you join the company. Now go talk to HR, and they'll tell you why we can fire you, fire you for any reason at any time. Right? And that doesn't make sense because there's no trust there. Right? And the idea of the, the alliance is to basically, first of all, admit what the realities are, but say, listen, we're bringing you on, and we're bringing you on because for the next two, three years, here's this thing that we're going to work on together. Right? And as we get close to the end of that, we're, we'll figure out you know, what is the next step. And maybe that's, again, doing other things at Humanize. Maybe that's going to another company. Right? But every six months, I meet with everybody and their manager, and we talk about long-term goals. And long-term goals are not, um, you know, what role do you want to get promoted to, um, those sort of things. For people earlier in their career, typically it is about skill building, things like that. But, I mean, for example, one of our engineers um, eventually wants to start a restaurant. Right? Well, it turns out I know one of the, um, the biggest names in corporate real estate here in Boston. So as we talked about it, I said, listen, when you're ready, let me know. I'll connect you up with him, and we'll get you a place for the restaurant. I've, of course, got a number of people who eventually want to start their own companies, one of our product people, some of our engineers. And so I brought them in to some of our meetings with, uh, with potential investors or RVCs just so they can get to meet them, they can get exposed to that process. Again, it doesn't cost us anything. It's just it helps them uh, get exposed to that sort of thing. And then as I tell them every six months when they want to start a company, let me know. I'll introduce you to angel investors. We'll get you set up. Um, and, and we can talk about more examples. But, but you know, the idea is that First of all, again, I think that's the right way to do things. But beyond that, um, even if you look at it from a cold, hard economic perspective, it makes a ton of sense, right? Because rather than giving me two weeks' notice, right, when one of my developers, one of our first developers, um, left the company about two years ago, um, he was like our first developer hire. And we finally needed him to focus on something because he'd been doing everything. He said, you know, do you want to focus on front end, back end, you know, whatever. And he said, well, you know, I don't, I don't really want to do either of those. I really like doing general stuff. So we, we didn't fire him. Right? What I did is I connected him up over the course of a couple months to a number of people I knew were starting um, tech companies in the Boston area, and we got him his next job. But what was great also from our perspective was that I knew I was going to need to you know, staff up another developer role, and I had time to recruit and all those things, and that's extremely helpful. Right? Now, and I think, so I think that you know, over time, you know, we'd like to become known as a place where if you come to work with us, you will have a demonstrably better career uh, than if you don't. Right? And part of that is because we're connected in so many different ways to, to of course, to large industry, to the you know, entrepreneurial community, but even to academia and things like that. Um, you know, beyond that, and again, it's just, it's, uh, and, and everyone says this, I mean, we've got, you know, a fantastic work environment. I mean, obviously the co-founders, we've been friends for well over 12 years. Um, and it's, you know, you have the world experts in this topic all together under one roof working with, um, you know, pretty, um, pretty incredible data, driving pretty large changes in real companies. It's a, it's a really exciting place to be. And so I think, you know, for us, bringing on talent has probably not been as much of a struggle as it is, at least I know, for um, large companies, a bunch of other startups. Um, and I think that's, again, a confluence of a lot of these factors. Fantastic. So it's been a great conversation. I, I apologize for not having enough time to go all the way here. Um, um, could you take a moment and reintroduce yourself and tell people how they might get a hold of you? That's right. So just again, I'm Ben Weber. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Humanize. Um, again, we're the, we're the world's leading people analytics company. Um, you can find us at uh, humanize.com. It's humanyze.com. Thanks very much, Ben. It's always, it's always a privilege to get a chance to pick your brain a little bit. 
Um, Thanks so much for doing this. Great speaking with you, John. Yeah, you've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. You've been talking with Ben Waver, who's the CEO and co-founder of Humanize. If you don't know about Humanize, it's H-U-M-A-N-Y-Z-E. Take a look at their website. And thanks for tuning in. And thanks again, Ben. It's been a great conversation. Great talk. See you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. 